Today, I'm joined by my friend Kruptos. He's the author of the website Seeking the Hidden Thing, the leader of a powerful group chat called The Christian Ghetto, and an illuminating Twitter effort thread poster. He's been on more podcasts than I can count, but I will link a couple that I particularly enjoyed. We got to know each other uh, better a little while ago when I joined him and our friend Big Tunit to record a discussion on vitalism and Christianity, which I will also link. I'm very much looking forward to discussing building a parallel polity and the trade-offs attending technology. Kryptos, how are you? I'm doing well. I hope I can live up to that um, that stellar introduction. So it's uh, yeah, of course. It's uh, yeah. No, I'm glad to be here. It's it's good talk. I enjoyed our last conversation on vitalism, and I'm excited with uh, some of the notes that you've thrown up to see where we go with this one. Yeah, I've, I've, you know, I've started wondering, should I ask, how are you on these kinds of things? Because we already talked, you know, for 30 or 45 minutes. And so I know how you do. <laughs> I am yeah, doing simulating well, yeah, so real conversation. So anyway, okay. But I'll think about that's that right. later. That's fine. I'm, I'm good. And you're good. It's, it's, yeah. it's good. <laughs> so in a, in a tweet that you put out actually like this morning, uh, you know, shortly before we started talking, uh, you quoted Elon Musk, who said that, uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats are bringing in illegal immigrants so that in the future they can cement one party state status. So this is what Elon Musk said. You replied, quote, yeah. only in America could you believe this. In many places where mass immigration is happening, there is effective one party rule already. Replacement is not the right word. They hope to create world peace by mixing up the peoples of the world to create one global civilization. So this, this struck me as like a nice way to, to frame the conversation because it seems to me a global civilization is very different than a parallel polity. So I was wondering if you could expand on what you had in mind when you sent that tweet. Or that post, sorry. Yeah, it's – yeah, no, it, it's, it's – um, it was interesting. It, it was one of those things that struck me. And the word the great replacement has struck me as odd – for quite some time. And it, it was really, sometimes things just hit you out of the blue and it was um, all of a sudden it just dropped for me the the, you know, the significance of this word, the great replacement. Um, and, you know, when, when Musk was made his tweet and, and, and said, Hey, listen, they're just trying to replace you as voters. They're trying, um, and they're trying to create a one party rule and you're realizing, okay, maybe the Democrat party that is part of the, the goal, you know, t- you know, turning Texas blue and all of these types of things. And those are real realities. Um, I'm not going to deny that those things aren't happening and these are not on the Democrat agenda. But when you look, you know, across the span of the globe, a lot of places, you know, like Germany, the Netherlands, France, France, Sweden, a lot of these places have had, um, you know, parties that have been in, in like have been ruling, you know, 10, 20, more, 30 years. Um, and that 
you know, effectively there are one party rule or they're putting together coalitions in which even if the governing party is different, the coalition partners are all the same. So the governing philosophy doesn't radically change from government to government, even if, you know, the, the masthead changes. Um, so a lot of people don't understand sort of the trauma of World War II and World War One, and, and what resulted from that. The Cold War suppressed it for a long time, but there was this basic impulse, and, and you see it beginning with the League of Nations and then the, um, the, uh, what, the League of Nations and... Um, Eventually the United Nations. Oh, what's the one in New York? The United Nations. There we go. Yeah. I just drew a complete blank. And the United Nations. And so you, you have this, this idea that... Um, the way to the problem with it that's that that started world war ii was narrow-minded national interests right so nationalism is what started world war ii and so in order to and, and this ties into sort of the technical impulse of of scaling everything up you know so you have all of these different currents that play into it so you've got and so the, the solution then was to transcend nationalism through the global community. So you, you bring things together like the United Nations. So we'll bring all the nations together to talk in one place and we'll work out our differences. And we'll have, you know, United Nations peacekeeping forces and they can go in and help adjudicate some of these small little conflicts between, between groups and we'll do maybe global policemen, global um, diplomats. But alongside of this, you also have the global economic project. So, um, you know, third world manufacturing um, and the global supply chain begins to get built during this process. You know, there's detente with China um, and, you know, trade with Japan. All of these things begin to open up um, free trade environment. But alongside of this, there is also the other aspect of um, mixing the people. So at the very top level of the global community are these group of, you know, we call them elites, but largely they're sort of deracinated technocrats. They don't belong anywhere. Um, I don't know if he was the person that coined it, but the former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper wrote a book um, talking about the anywheres, and the somewheres, right? So the anywheres are those people who um, place no longer matters for them. They can make their money, do their business anywhere they want. They, they jet set all over the world. They fly here, they fly there. They can have meetings in Tokyo, then meetings in Madrid, then meetings in, in, in LA, then back to New York City, and then down to you know Brazil. And, and so, and they just, they can do, they can hop around the world. They can have an office anywhere they go. A factory is a factory. A plant is a plant. An office is an office. A system is a system. It doesn't matter where you are, right? And so that kind of technical mindset, building the sort of universal system is, is then applied to um, people groups. So you build, in a sense, a global community. Well, how do you build a global community? Well, you encourage people to mix and interact with each other, right? So... Um, now you, you can't as Westerners go and say, Hey, we're going to mix with you. We're going to go where you are and we're going to get rid of your culture because that's cultural imperialism. 
right? So you can't do that. That's what, um, that was bad. And that was what, um, you know, um, the unwinding of all of these European empires, um, you know, colonialism, decolonization, that's that whole thing. So decolonize. So that's that whole effort. So you can't go there and tell them to take on your characteristics and homogenize that way. But what you can do is you can bring those people here and then you can break down the, the, the differences here. You know, and this gets down to, um, what is it, the, it was Cameron or what, one of the British politicians, you know, said we're going to rub conservatives' faces in, in, in multiculturalism. Well, this is kind of what they meant, is that it's, it's not so much that, you know, um, you know, we're going to rub your faces in this great replacement theory and we're going to, you know, we're going to replace you as voters with these. And it's like, no, you guys are holding on to your narrow minded English identity and we're going to rub your face the, in the world. And we're going to tell you, you're going to become not a citizen of England, but a citizen of the global community. And we're going to bring the global community here and rub your face in it. At least that was my interpretation of that. And so um, the mass immigration becomes a, a, a thing of um, then creating this homogenous, globalized community, not by us spreading there, but by taking the world and bringing it into your... And so really what they're meaning is in many ways, effectively, we're not going to eliminate your cultures, but you're going to come here and eliminate <laughs> our culture. Um, because then we become... Because we're, in that sense, they're still basically fighting Hitler and the Nazis. I'm probably just going to kill your... Um, your, your um, algorithm on, on whoever, wherever you're posted, but you know, you're, we're still fighting world mm -hmm. war two. Yeah. And so we know who the bad people are and we have to get rid. And so the way to get rid of the bad people in that regard is who cling to their national identity is to create this global homogenized community, a community that mirrors them as elites where anybody can be anywhere. Complete people are completely mm -hmm. fungible. And we're going to begin by bringing everyone here and then, and then now, if you have the side benefit of um, of replacing current voters and grading one power status, well, that's even better, right? But and then so when my my challenge with it is when you use language like the Great Replacement, um, even if that may be kind of true, you know, it captures some of what's mm -hmm. going on. It plays into them propagandistically, right? Because what's happening? Falling birth rates. And because of the, their drive for globalization, right? So you, you have um, labor arbitrage, right? So that for your listeners who don't understand, that's a fancy term for saying that we will, at the same time as we're shipping your jobs overseas to have cheap third world labor do your work, right? We're also going to bring third world laborers here to work where you are at third world wages, right? And so they cut you both ways, right? So... Um, and, and, and so they're, they're suppressing wages here by shipping your jobs overseas and by also bringing people in to work. So then you get those du dual arguments. Well, you know, birth rates are falling, so we need to, to maintain the, the population size, right? So that's an argument. And then the other one is, well, people won't do that work here. And like, well, no, they won't do that work here for third world wages, but they will do the work if you pay <laughs> right. them you know, 
commensurate to to the type of work. But as a society, we have been sold this this bill of goods that that um, living on, as a consumer society that the thing that is most valuable is cheap consumer goods, not being a society of producers that make quality goods, right? So you flip that around. So if your goal is always, you know, cheap goods, and so the group that's in charge, again, these same deracinated technocrats, um, they don't work, they control things for their own benefit. So they're not working for you. So cheap consumer goods allows them to extend the game that we're playing, the inflationary game that we're playing of, of constantly overexpanding the money supply, devaluing your money. And so you, you're allowed to seem like you're continuing to maintain your standard of living by constantly bringing in cheaper goods from overseas, masking the fact that you're actually becoming poor over time. So you're being emiserated slowly over time. Mm. Um, but you know that's all economic in one part. So when you're talking about great replacement theory, they actually have a justification come back and say, well, you know, population is falling. We need these people here. We, you know, we're not replacing you. We're just filling in the missing gap, right? And we need these people here because you won't do this work. So you have, so you're actually playing into their, their propaganda. And so I don't know if I have an answer necessarily, but you have to sort of say like that, that technically the, the phrase, the great replacement, um, mm -hmm is not a useful one for us because it actually undercuts, even if you understand what they're doing, it undercuts your ability to combat it messaging wise. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That was a big answer yeah. for quick, but it's, I think it's, it's a big question. A lot of people just say great replacement and don't understand sort of the historical context, what's really going on. And then also how this is actually um, working against you propagandistically that you're actually playing into their hands by using the term, the great replacement. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, I have a few things to say. So, because you had brought out how, well, on one hand, that so via multiculturalism, that makes it so that we can't really tell the rest of the world how to act. And then so in some strange way, we've like invited people to come here because we can't destroy their culture, as you were saying, but they can destroy ours and, you know, uh, make it otherwise. And I did, I wonder if, there is some sense in which the United States and or its allies, et cetera, or something like that, like end up through universal human rights, partially promoting some kind of limit on multiculturalism. Cause it does seem like universal human rights impose a limit. If one takes them seriously or something like that, a limit on what a culture can or should be so that we can be really mad at Saudi Arabia for not letting women drive or for, you know, you can have like a BBC article on like, well, now there are Saudi women starting food trucks. Isn't this amazing? This is like an incredible advance in their culture. You know, that this, this is like kind of come to pass. And I don't know, so, so that there are certain limits imposed, but maybe to say one more thing is that um, there's a way in which hu universal human rights allow us to invade the world in a way. And, and, it, and it does stem from World War II, like you were saying, in as much as like, we sort of said, like, look what Hitler did inside his regime. So sovereignty, like through the Treaty of like Westphalia, was supposed to be a kind of, I don't know, mode in which you say, like, look, what you do inside your borders, you Catholics or Protestants or something like that, is okay. We're, we should stop fighting each other about these kinds of things. But then World War II <laughs> changes it 
and sort of says like, no, you can't do what you want inside of your border. There are certain limits that we have to impose at an international level and make sure that we can invade whenever that like those minimal like levels are breached or not followed sufficiently well. But it, it kind of creates like a pretext for war at any moment in a way. And so I think Steve Saylor maybe had this phrase um, of like invade the world and invite the world. The universal human rights allows us to create these kind of like crises like in the Middle East and destabilize a region for like 20 years with these horrible forever wars. Um, that, I don't know. And then all of a sudden, yeah, then then they're coming here. And then what you're saying seems to take place. So, yeah, I don't know. You look like you have. It's 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 interesting, like, because there is a kind of cultural hegemony going on and, and is being imposed. But what's being imposed, like you look at um, like N.S. Lyons, right, and his piece on, on, on the mm-hmm. China convergence, right, how the U.S. and China are becoming increasingly similar. Well, what's making them increasingly similar is is technical culture. So on the American side, you have the soft imposition of technical culture. On the Chinese side, you have the hard imposition of technical culture. But what's the binding thing between them is the imposition of technical culture. So when you're looking at places like Saudi Arabia, you know, what's what's how are they being infiltrated? There's not boots on the ground, right? right? Um, it may not even be like American TV these days, right? Um, but what's being inculcated is the technical mindset. Right. So um, through the business community, through other things, you you gradually and it, it, it slowly begins to undermine. So if you want success, you have to step out of your local culture to embrace global business culture and deracinate yourself. Then you become completely fungible and you can move. So there is a sense of where like the Chinese are resisting this in part because of the, the hard power, they can close off certain of those cultural avenues so they can try to say, hey, we're holding on to the culture. But they are becoming more and more increasingly um, uh, technologized as, as it goes on. So that it's, it's not that they're being Americanized, it's that they're being technologized. And that's what you might see in the Middle East is that the Middle East is becoming increasingly more technologized. Um, and I say, so, so they will celebrate the, the certain emancipations, mm-hmm. right? But they won't necessarily put cultural boots on the ground that says you have to be like this. They will dangle mm-hmm. the carrot and says, here's the carrot. So they'll dangle the carrot of our own prosperity, come and be a deracinated um, cog in our economic machine, in mm-hmm. our community, and we can expand that sort of deracination across our own society, um, help mm-hmm. us do that. And um, at the same time, in, you know, if you want to succeed in the global world, you have to deracinate at home too. And that's, and then um, now there are resistance factors to that. You, you see that in Europe now that, that they're not actually deracinating. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not actually becoming technocrats in many ways, or, so probably the best example of this is a place like Canada, where, um, you know, early on you saw a lot of people come and immigrants were, you know, what they would call like high value immigrants, right? So they're coming to become doctors, engineers, pharmacists, anything with like really good career options. They don't become lawyers, they become like real world, you know, computer software. And so especially early on, they embraced a lot of these these technocratic fields. And then, you know, using 
um, diversity, equity, inclusion. They work their way into government. They work their way into business administrations. Now people are beginning to notice that once these low-hanging fruit have been largely picked and you keep bringing people in, that these easy, you know, high-end employment jobs are, are drying up because they've been filled. Um, also because you've brought in lots of immigrants, the housing prices have rise, so the it's costing more to stay here. And so you're noticing now an increasing amount of immigration churn where the opportunities aren't there, so they're going back home because they're realizing, yeah, maybe my opportunities are just as good back home. Um, so, but it doesn't change the fact that in the last decade, they, you know, the Canadian population is now, I think, 35%, something like that, uh, non-Canadian born. Like, that's right. crazy numbers. Like, it, it, um, I, I, it may not be that high, but it, it, it's, it's right. fairly high. Um, and, and they're, you know, they're promised economic prosperity in this, right? And, but as a result, it, it is changing the culture if you're paying attention. Oh yeah, undoubtedly. <laughs> like, how could it not? How could it not? Um, yeah. So mm, there's a lot to say. So, but maybe, uh, I'll skip one question ahead and then maybe we can work back or something like that. Um, cause I think sure. this just makes sense with what you had had said is that so there's there's a, a nice article that you wrote called building a parallel polity sketching out the road ahead but um you say at one point in the article the key and i'm now quoting you the key in this is to disentangle ourselves from both the punishments and the rewards of the regime could you expand on this i think i think this is really important and it's related to a lot yeah. of other problems uh right yeah now this is something yeah, yeah now this is something directly you know, lifted right out of a lure and from the political illusion. And that's one of the things that he talks about is that the reason why people embrace this, this derationated global regime is that it offers tremendous rewards. So at each level of scale, as you aggregate it, you know, there's a lot of business opportunities that, would never exist without the World Wide Web, without globalism and so forth, right? So, you know, you have a mom and pop business, it serves a local community, that's fine. You take the next step, you expand it, make it regional, you know, it's a statewide business, right? Now you realize it's a statewide business becomes a bigger organization, but with that, now you're also making more money, you have bigger rewards, more influence, more power. Now you take this business national, right? And again, further, because you're aggregating the the number of people that you know you're selling widgets to, products and services to, whatever, the rewards increase again, right? And so at every level of scale, you can see the pyramid grows, right? So the bottom becomes bigger and bigger and bigger, and the top, and the you know people have noticed, um, you know, the difference between say CEO pay and the bottom. Well, part of the reason why there's difference between CEO pay and the bottom is as society has begun to expand globally, and everything, the the rewards at the top keep getting higher and higher and higher because you're, the pyramid is bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So you get that winner take all. So once you're at the top with the rewards, and this is what incentivizes every, so, you know, as you get further down the pyramid, you know, everybody wants to be in sort of this, in, in this rewards pyramid. So, um, and, and we've been told that, you know, the two major rewards that technology, like the technical society gives you, it allows you to manage things at scale, to have, you know, greater power over 
society, nature, whatever. So, you know, you can manage anything at scale. So it's, you know, whether it's a society, whether it's, it's building products, but it allows you to manage reality at scale, gives you greater power and control over reality mm-hmm. at scale. Oftentimes people, um, communities, nations, whatever, like nationalism isn't possible without technique, right? And, and so this is why you don't really see technical culture coming until the American and French revolutions, right? So, and, and both of which are, are mm-hmm. technical events. Um, the, you know, the managerial class applying the managerial skills and growing businesses to, to government, to sweep aside the old order um, that was person-centered um, to one that is technique-centered. Um, and so that allows you to manage at ever greater scale um, societies and, and the kind of scales of warfare. And that's one of the things that really allowed America to dominate. Um, it hasn't necessarily been the skill of their fighters on the ground, although American fighters, are, I'm sure, do just fine that way. But really what allows Americans to thrive is their manufacturing capacity mm-hmm. and their logistics, right? And so if you can build global logistics and, and manage a global supply chains, um, militarily, it allows you to dominate in a way that other other nations cannot. And so it's really just manufacturing base and, and logistics, technical. So you can then manage armies at scale, right? And manage them quickly at scale, efficiently at scale, and so forth. Um, the other thing that technique allows you to do is to make a lot of money at scale. And so the rewards become greater and greater and greater. So this is why you see, say, in the United States, which has been pretty much an empire since its founding. As you move from the 13 colonies into a single entity, the United States, um, it's basically the EU before the EU. Now you call it a country, but it, it really has functioned. So what happens is as you grow a scale, as the, as the federal government increasingly begins to absorb more powers, especially after the 14th Amendment, after the Civil War, was really the vehicle to allow... Um, northern industrial interests to impose themselves across the country, mm-hmm. right? And then once those, once, once you know, that sort of national hold is imposed across the country, then it draws all of your best and brightest into the core, you know, New York, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. Washington. And they then, you know, the, if you want to make it and you want to enjoy the regimes of the world, you have to then step out of your local community. You know, have to move away from home to your ties to people, neighborhood, land, um, you know, everything is familiar. You have to let go of all of those ties and then you join the national elite and the goal and, and all for the prize. You know, you go to Harvard, then you work at Wall Street and, and that's success. Now you're making like, you know, multiple six figures, a million dollars a year. And these are kind of rewards that really aren't there in your hometown. Like you could do well in your hometown. You're smart, capable, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, you could probably even make yourself wealthy, but not wealthy in the kind of way that say an Elon Musk is wealthy, right? And that's really the, so that's your rewards on the other hand. Um, Then on the other hand is, and this is maybe more significant as we're seeing now with like cancel culture and, and, um, bureaucratic inertia, lawfare, punishing you with regulations and so forth is disentangling yourself from the power of the administrative regime. So how do you then, so it avoids, you're also, if you want to build a parallel community and, and, and to um, re-enculturate yourself Mm -hmm. locally, um, 
then you have to be able to be willing to resist the rewards, which is probably easier to do. It's easier to say like, hey, listen, I'm just going to stay home and build a community here at home. But the harder thing then to do is to find a way to make yourself resistant to the stick that the that the regime wields. And so they will want to punish you. Pretty, like the Mennonites really only exist because they're not threatening. Right. And so we look at the Mennonites. But if you have a real substantial community that's threatening, like you see these articles, um, right? Um, far stream right wingers are buying up land in Germany. Right. And you see these are and they're immediately threatened by this idea. Right. Um, and, you know, we're familiar with some groups that are, they're buying they're, that they're looking to, to buy some land and would maybe draw too much attention to them because they still try to, you know, but somebody noticed wrote an article, and next thing you know, there is pressure coming from state, from national government to, like, shut this down. Is it equitable? Is it? And they'll, they'll dump all of these to, to sort of bring you into the, the regime harmony. So you have to find a way to say in your organizations that, no, we are not going to follow the dictates of the regime. Now, they will bring lawfare against you. So this is where you realize that you, you, you're living under this regime, right? So, and the, 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 the notion of building a parallel policy, this is probably like, why would you want to do this, right? Why not just take over the regime? Well, and this is really something that, that Alul noted is that, and that's another piece that I've written, is that you can't do it because the re- regime doesn't really exist for conservative ends. It, it has a utopian end to it. Um, and it's partly because of the iterative nature of, of technique, right? So, um, you think the it, it mirrors that of, of scientific discovery, right? So you you put in a place a system to solve a problem, right? So you develop a set of procedures and policies. You abstract, you know, you look at a problem, break it down, abstract it, develop a set of procedures and policies to solve and correct the problem, right? And then you insert people back in, instruct them in the, in the policies that are managed so that they that they adhere to the system. And then you watch it. And if, if, if it doesn't quite work, you go back, you break it down again, you analyze it and you fix it a little bit more and you fix it a little bit more. And you continue the, you know, the idea is with, with systemic thinking and, and with technologizing is that in both hard technology systems and so forth, that if we keep at it and keep at it and keep improving, keep improving, keep improving, eventually we arrive at sort of, you know, the one best way to do everything. And it's a, it's a utopian dream, sort of, which people have mentioned the singularity, right? But sort of you have, there's always this quest for the best practices in everything. And um, the idea is then that, that you know, you have this utopian vision that, that as you continually apply these, these technical solutions and develop them and, and, and refine them and hone that each other. That's why I say like with COVID, I said, nobody's ever going to get punished with COVID because um, it's, it's, it's COVID, it's, it's um, pandemic response 1.0. And so another pandemic will come and that's what they hope, you know, or maybe they die, but um, nobody will be punished because now they'll just go back and look at it and say, well, what went wrong and how do we devise better policies Mm -hmm. for the next time? And then, so then the next time you'll, they'll, they'll be more refined. They'll be better implemented. They'll be more efficient. And every time they'll be, they, they just iterate it and nobody will ever be punished for anything that goes wrong because they just go back to the meetings and say, well, it wasn't our fault. It was the systems. We just, you know, this is the first time we've done this. You know, of course things are going to go wrong. Right. You know, that's the way. So we just trial and error, right? So we'll just work it out. The next time it'll be better next time, and that's the way. So, um, 
you're looking to then, you know, absolutely. The, 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 Alul says because of this, um, this notion of of the nature of the thing itself, it, it goes back to say something like Marshall McLuhan said um, that the medium is the message, right? Um, is that when you look at technical systems, they have a telos. Uh, Alul argued that technique is ambivalent; it doesn't care. So we generally, generally try to look at technique as either good or bad, or often the most common way is it's neutral, right? It, it's, it's just a thing, and it, what matters is how you use it, right? The, the gun debate revolves around this, right? right? A gun is a neutral object. It doesn't matter. It just, but no, Lou would argue that no, a gun is, it has certain positive benefits and it has certain negative benefits, and they're going to happen. And they're going to have certain unexpected benefits and unexpected negatives. And they're going to happen. They're built into the mm-hmm. technology itself, right? It's neither good nor bad. The technology itself doesn't care. So you implement and they're going to happen. Um, and so if you could fold that in with, with McLuhan's idea that um, the medium is the message, what you see then is that, um, take, for example, television. The fact of the television is more important than any one particular right. show. Um, so whether you're watching garbage or whether you're watching good stuff, you're still a couch potato watching television, right? And you still have a three-minute attention span or three-second attention span. You know, all of these type of effects that come from television watching and its presence in your life. Um, and with, right, and the same thing too with like the automobile. The, 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 the fact of the automobile is more important than any one particular trip that you might take, Right. And so with the administrative state, the fact of the administrative state is more important than any one particular policy mm-hmm. that you would implement. So the administrative state is going, this is why in a sense that Cthulhu always swims left is because the administrative state is technically minded. It has this iterative approach for policy management and so forth. So even if you, I mean, you could in theory, I suppose, um, institute cons- quote unquote conservative policies technically, but as soon as you take your pressure off it, the basic nature of the system is going to begin to take over again. And, um, and you see this happening with Elon Musk, you know, you go fire all these people or whatever, but what's happening now is that, you know, diversity inclusion are beginning to come back in and, and they just will naturally, that's just sort of the way the nature of the systems is that they will, that they will go towards the impulses of the system to, you know, perfect. And largely the systems these days with liberal mindset of creating equality and equity. Right. So, um, Towards those ends, the system will keep doing. So, Vaclav Havel then noted that right. Okay, so you can't take the system over, and there's a, a number of reasons for that. Like, um, and you could get into it at length. I, I wrote a piece about it. Had an interview with Orrin McIntyre about it. Um, but so you you can't reform it. Um, you can't bend it towards conservative purposes. Um, so, and and. We have to see the state is not just something in government. It's used in business, nonprofits. It's used everywhere that there's technical thinking. So you could burn it all to the ground, but I'm not a utopian, right? I'm not a revolutionary. I'm not of the mindset that billions must die. And um, Vaclav Havel noted the thing that if you become reactionary, you're being defined by the thing you're reacting against, right? So I'm anti-state, right? Well, you're being defined by the state, right? So... He argued then that what you really need to do is don't join the state, don't join the anti-state, do the right thing. So what we call door number three. And so door number three then is 
we're not going to try to bring down the state, which would revolt in massive amounts of suffering, right? Because you know that's what's going to happen when it does, if you bring down, because you're basically bringing down the West. So you then, the alternative is, is to start a, an alternative, can do the right thing. So you just begin building communities that are able to resist the rewards and the, the punishments of the regime. Right. And they will find you. So you have to be able to. So that raises a whole bunch of other companies because, you know, the regime, this is what I call the, the tank problem. The regime has tanks. So you have to figure out how to deal with tanks. Um, the Mennonites don't. They don't have in any way to. So the, the Mennonites aren't threatening because they don't have a way to deal with tanks. If they had a way to deal with tanks, trust me, the, 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 they would be approached yeah. as a threat. Um, so if you're. You know, and this is you know, the kind of the Greg Abbott thing right now, where you make yourself a bit of a threat. And you, um, but so this is kind of you know, and I'm not sure there's necessarily an easy answer. But the and and this is I think relating to technique and technology um, in a way that is non-utopian, right? Can it be right. done, right? So not necessarily, and this was another question. Um, this is like the Tolkien thing where he taught, you know, like, why does he emphasize the Shire so much in, in, well, maybe, maybe in the, well, like stop there for because just like Tolkien, a half second. Um, cause yeah. Cause yeah, I think this like leads into the, to the next maybe thing that I had in mind. Um, so, hmm. okay. So it seems like one way to break out of the incentive structure of the regime, like, because there are, as you point out, you know, really powerful incentives to globalize and to you know, build businesses that have this greater mm-hmm. scale and reach. Like those rewards are tangible. They're good in certain respects. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like based on what you're saying, one way to try to break out of this is to really start to think about what the system itself is orienting all of its like adherence into. And that like, yeah, you, you make a lot of money, but there are these like very steep trade-offs with respect to maybe what the most important rewards might be. And so then you start to think like, okay, so we really should do something altogether different. And as you point out, like the state helps itself to a number of technical means and that like the the very existence of those technique or like technical means changes like the moral imagination in terms of like what options are available and what options are appealing that just the fact that the internet exists to, you know, follow your McLuhan line of thought is more important than like how you use it, that it's already changes our sense of like how, what the world is and like how we interact with the world. And there's, there's a lot to say about that. Um, but, and, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about specific critiques of technology that you, you know, put pretty elegantly um, in a minute, but, and, and I'm inclined to agree with most of them. I think like I, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Have been like, a, like I've never owned a smartphone and like things like that. So like, at the same time, though, it's like not as if like I don't have a home that has heating and a car or enjoy airplanes. Like, you know, I help my help myself to like a whole host of these technical options and like enjoy. We're chatting like, right now over yeah, the exactly, Internet, right? Exactly. So so it's not yeah. as if like I'm not immune, like in any way immune to the charms of these things and like enjoy them. But there was maybe to some extent, some vitalists have push me to be slightly more open to technology or to wonder about this. Cause you, you were talking about door number three. So maybe I'll talk about just for a second, like a presentation of two doors and then you can open door number three. Um, there's a tweet. I've like, mm-hmm. talked about this with space age maximalist and maybe William Wheelwright. And I talked about it a little bit too, but Bap had a tweet where he sort of puts, puts a picture of like Werner von Braun, um, German rocket scientist. Uh, and he's like standing next to 
a bunch of model rockets on one hand. And then it's next to a picture of some sort of, maybe it's a Brazilian favela or something like that. I don't, I'm not exactly sure where it's from, but, but yeah. the, the, the global sort of polyglot state where you just sort of invite the whole world to come in and deracinate your way of life or something along those lines is that like the standard of living seems to be lowering the United States and Canada, like things cost more. And it's like, uh, I don't know. There's a lot to say about that. But so he sort of says like, you know, look, there's these two different ways that you could go. We either need to restore the kind of competence required in order to continue technological development, which would probably entail, you know, massive deportations or at least at the very least closing the border in a very strong way for like a very, very long time in order to digest the people who are here in order to like help them participate in the American way of life on one hand. Or like we'll just have shanty towns everywhere and maybe there'll be a few managerial elite who are able to live in beautiful gated communities while they talk about. Yeah. Anyway, you, you see where I'm going with this. But I think you in our conversations before this had suggested that that build spaceships or live in a favela. Those are two possibilities. But you, you think that there's like a third door that we could open. Yeah. And it's probably the harder path. I, I'm. I'm not necessarily like I there, you know, everyone's attracted to the idea of limitless progress. I mean, it's, it's a reason why it's the cornerstone of our culture is because it's a very compelling and attractive idea. We all want to believe that, you know, we can continue to progress like the Werner Braun Bond um, is, is a compelling vision. Right. And techno-optimism is a compelling that we can overcome the Malthusian trap and, and, you know, we can head off to the stars and we can do, you know, space mine on Mars and asteroids and, and all of these things. Right. And everybody wants to believe. But I tend to look at like the world is a finite place. And so there are limits. And I think part of of. And, and this was something that Spengler noted, is that the West is partic in particular uh, wants to deny this notion that there are limits, that I can, I can expand to the heavens, everything can expand infinitely off to the horizons. With, and, and this is kind of what we, we do morally, is we, we want to continually break down barriers. And so, um, you know, the, the, the sexual revolution, all of these other things are about, you know, continually breaking down barriers, breaking down barriers, breaking down moral barriers, breaking down social barriers, breaking down intellectual barriers. And, and we're constantly expanding out. We're constantly breaking down barriers. You know, we have no limits on knowledge. We have, and, um, and I don't necessarily think that the other uh, the, the alternative necessarily is that we all live in favelas. Um, mm -hmm. And what Tolkien argued instead of, and this is something that, that Alul notes as well too, is that we tend to look at the problem of, of growth as um, a good in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And what, Tolkien doing contrasting, you know, the twin towers and, you know, Saruman's tower, Isengard, um, as you know, this is sort of in industrial devouring, right? Mm -hmm. And he spends so much time in, in the Lord of the Rings, um, developing and, and picturing the image of the Shire, but then also continually referencing back to it. And 
the picture that he creates is one of a kind of stasis, mm-hmm. right? And, and we have this idea that if you're not moving forwards, you're moving backwards, which is a very Western way of looking at the world. And, um, and, and Tolkien challenged that and said in, in the Lord of the Rings and said that no, perhaps, you know, that that's one vision of the world. Um, but another vision of the world might be that we can just simply um, sort of, you know, have a kind of harmony with the world around us. We can just stay in kind of a blessed stasis, you know, indefinitely. Um, and I don't know whether that's necessarily appealing or not to people, but we tend to be of this mind that things must be growing and bigger and faster and and, and so forth. But Tolkien said that, no, they don't necessarily have to be. Um, the vast majority of people enjoy just living a life interconnected with their neighbors um, and and having that kind of flourishing at a local level. And you don't necessarily need to scale things up that way. And there, there, there is interesting, you know, that the, the world comes to the Shire um, after Saruman is deposed. That's the one thing that the movies leave out. And they have to kick out the like the the defeated saruman from from the shire and reclaim the space right so from and and but the shires is not it's it's changed and it's not the same as it was before because they've learned about the world um so there is something i think that there are alternate visions i think but for many of us we look at that um as a from a western perspective as um unappealing because we have been so hard trained that, you know, things must grow, they must head off towards, you know, the utopian future that we're building for ourselves, that um, we can't just sort of stay like this is good enough. And I think part of that is, is comes from a rejection of, of Christian notions of history. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as humanism made us the primary actors, right? Whereas Prior to humanism, um, there there was a certain directionality to history, but um, God was the primary actor. So you had creation, then there was the fall. We messed everything up, but salvation really comes from God. So He sends His Son, and then um, you believe, but He's going to return again, and then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And so we live within this kind of static architecture, and we're basically waiting for it. And there, there has been some speculation. I wish I could remember the book where I read it, but that um, because the millenarian um, expectations around the year 1000 were not satisfied, there was a kind of psychic break in the culture. And um, that is a sense argued that that may be the event that gave rise to what we call as the West. So they began to sort of become more human, rejecting, uh, pushing back against the Christian vision that way. Wow. That's really interesting. Uh, I, I kind of want to think about some of these things, and maybe maybe we can take a quick break. So we're back. Um, so something interesting, Kluptos, you said is like th- this difficulty of 
I don't know, having stasis in a regime that, um, I don't know, that, that it seems like technology, like, always introduce like introduces kind of like innovative or disruptive effects like like you're saying just like the fact that these things exist like make it really hard um to i don't know to have stability in terms of like habits like our habitual substrate is like affected by any new technology that's like introduced especially once it becomes ubiquitous and you can't really avoid it you can't step outside of it you start to become even maligned for not like possessing certain features of it even if you opt out of like one element people are like what, what are you doing isn't this like really good for us to have um so I wonder if you could like maybe sketch out a little bit of like what you think, like what does, and, and I think you say in the article, and I think this is good, um, like let's not have too much of a plan for what a parallel polity looks like, because that almost like starts to fall back into what you've described as this kind of inframing of technique of like, well, like let's make sure all the policy papers are prepared before we even begin to like, you know, get together in Texas or elsewhere or whatever, you know, it's like, make sure that something cool can happen, that it's better if it happens organically, that people, that there's just some, some kind of arresting vision of incentives that the regime can't offer. They're somehow spiritually or intellectually superior um, in a way. So how, like, what does, I mean, in as much as like granting your point that you shouldn't plan it out too much, could you sketch a little bit about what a parallel polity would look like and then also maybe what its relationship to technology might look like? Yeah, so the, the difference primarily, and I'm actually writing a piece about this right now, but the difference primarily is um, the difference between persons and, and system, right? Mm -hmm. So with, with the technical system, the system is abstracted, it's rationalized, and then human beings are, are fitted back into the system, right? So you take a... Like, and, on the opposite is you have something that is embedded organically in society. So it's, you're still in many ways often using techniques, um, but it's how you learn. them. So they're held collectively in memory. So like you think an apprenticeship, right? You go and you learn from the master and he teaches you things. It's hands-on. Um, there might be some written and, and, some of it, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like it's not, but you would basically learn things on hand. And then the key, the key other thing, and I think this is one of the things that, that we have a real aversion to in the West, especially since the revolutionary period. Um, I mean, because really, like, in many ways, what was the point of the the Constitution was to prevent tyrants from gaining hold of governance over you, right? So you play them off against each other with a balance of power. So you recognize in a sense that, you know, the, 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 to its credit, they didn't embrace a Rousseauian vision of the goodness of man. They recognize people are, are flawed. Mm -hmm. They're going to be greedy, ambitious, selfish, and so forth. Mm -hmm. But the way to control this is we're going to develop a system in which we play them off against each other in the balance of power. So we're going to have power, some power to this group, some power to this group, and some power to this group. And then by playing them off together within a set of rules, and which everybody accepts the rules of the game, and by playing everybody off within this agreed-upon set of rules, we can mitigate the tyrant, the rule by a person. Right. So it, you, you develop this, this kind of rules. And this is an early sense of, of, of a policy based, rules based order, so forth. So 
the alternative to that is is what existed prior to that. And one of the things that um, the the merchant classes really dislike is the variability that exists within humanity. Right. So um, you can have these systems get implemented because what the systems do is raise the floor, right. And create consistent, predictable outcomes, right. So the policies, it allows you to fit a greater number of people in of say lesser ability into the system and produce higher results consistently than you might otherwise, right. By teaching them the ways of the system and so forth. Right. So they fall but the problem with the system is it's also leveling the other way, is that it also cuts off the highs. And this is why with the, the Von Braun door is that as long as you introduce technical systems into society, you're going to eventually call the great men out of your society because you have no place for them in the managerial system. So the alternative to this, and this is maybe the selling point of these alternative systems, is like, hey, you want real opportunity, I'm going to put you in charge and now you're going to be personally responsible for what happens. Your gifts and abilities are what are going to drive this. And so the alternative to a systems-based approach is to once again relearn how to trust the leadership of persons. You know, um, the kind of thing like and you think about it, this sort of like we have director's insurance, right? Nobody pays a cost for anything. So failure in the pre-revolutionary period, Middle Ages and so forth, um, you failed the king, you lost your head, your family lost their titles, and your whole clan was basically ruined. You know, the price for failure was high. Um, And, you know, that that might be like minor failures that could be endured. Maybe you're shunted off to the side, your status is reduced. You know, there'd be gradations of this. But ultimately, in the end, you play for life status, you know, the whole shebang, right? So there was a a quote-unquote accountability. Mm -hmm. But you, you basically had the rule of persons in the end. Um, there were laws, they were written down, but a lot of these laws were reflections of what was already existent in the culture. Now, the king is a singular figure and the king would be, you know, we talk, I, I've talked elsewhere about the miracle of law and, and this notion of where does authority come from. But there is this kind of, especially with, and that's one of the reasons I think too, that Germanic culture and, and Christian culture were amenable to each other is because in, in the Germanic culture, you had this idea of, of the, you know, magic blood for the, for the chieftain, right? The chieftain becomes, because he's this charismatic person with magic blood and, and the God's blessing, right? Which is very similar to this notion, like, you know, you think of Moses going up the mountain and being on high and this, the, the hierarchy of being the, you might call it a divine right of Kings, but, you know, David as uniquely singular figure having, you know, a special mission from God. So these, these two ideas get mailed because authority ultimately um, doesn't rest on reason or it, it really, the only place that grounds authority is this, this voice of God, um, and, and the old Germanic kings had that, and, and there is a vision of it in Scripture. And so you could fold those two together and meld them throughout the Middle Ages into um, a kind of vision for, you know, a shared rule between crown and church and, and the two competing, the institutions sort of 
working together and playing off each other to maintain a singular vision for society of, you know, a Christian society, Christendom, right? Mm -hmm. So you had the, 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 the sword and you had the spirit and they would work, you know, they would work together to create a flourishing society, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That, that, but a lot of it is dependent upon the rule of persons. Now, we generally tend to think that, you know, if somebody is ruling over us, it's a tyrant. And that's partly because of, of how we've been inculcated. But even, you know, prior to the revolutionary period, it was, even though there was bureaucracy and there were offices, largely it was men that were doing it. But the quality of these men was very uneven. Some of them would be really good. Some of them not so much, right? And you look back to Roman times. Um, and again, it's one of these things where you pick things up along the way. But from my understanding of it is that a Roman governor, when they were appointed, had to present um, their own particular plan of how they plan to run things and the rules that they would use to govern their territory while they're there. And they were posted sort of officially. Mm-hmm. Um, so with every governor, you would be appointed a governor and mm-hmm. everything would change with the new governor. All of the, you know, the governor might leave certain things in place. He might leave the people, the systems, whatever. But the new government might co- governor might come in and change everything. Right. Whereas we look at a policy manual, computer systems, all the rest of these structures and, and, and organizations is that um, when a leader gets changed, really the organization doesn't change at all in many ways because all of the policies remain the same, all the structures remain the same. And the new leader comes in, he might make some changes and improve, but he's improving an existing order, an existing you know rational order. And he's expected to, in some sense, sort of fit under this rational order himself because there's been enduring policies that are there. Whereas prior to this, um, you know, rule by persons, I've used this example before as well, too. You know, you think to yourself, you know, let's take, for example, the position of the master of the stable in a, in a king's retouring, right? So you might start out as a, a stable boy. You know, you would be brought in to service and then somebody notices you. Oh, he's a really good worker. He's smart. He's given more tasks. He's trained. And over the years, you're given more tasks. You're given more tasks. And people notice you. And you might then work up and you become sort of the right-hand man to the current um, stable master. Then when the old stable master retires or dies or is falls out of favor, you know, um, you've learned the running of the whole thing. So you've learned it culturally, but nobody sat down and rationalized it or whatever but you've inculcated the culture of running the king's stables, mm-hmm. right? And now you're the new stable master. But when you're in charge, you're in charge, mm-hmm. right? You're in charge of everybody underneath you, but you're also responsible to the king for the running of the stables. You know, if all of a sudden the king's horses start dying, um, things will probably go pretty bad for you, right? right? Or they potentially could, unless there isn't an obvious you know, reason for it, because it, it, it might be a sense of your management, um, is uh, so in a in a you know when you think of a parallel community i think this is kind of what we're going to have to re-embrace i would think is that you get into a society and this is why not having a plan ahead of time so you you start something and the idea is i mean you just start working it out as you go um and not so much writing it down but developing a culture and that the, the leadership can rest on. And so your leaders kind of move up from within, they move up the, the culture, they learn leadership that way, but also the, all the other tasks of maintaining the society. And everything is held within the collective knowledge of the people. Now, you might at some point write down, 
here's what the rules are. But generally in an older society, you would have a simple set of rules that would have a wide range of applications. You know, you have, you have 10 commandments that then can be applied across a whole range of scenarios. So they get applied very flexibly and loosely. And a lot of it ends up coming down to like, well, that's just not the way we do things around here. Well, it's not written down anywhere, but that's just not the way we do things here. So somebody pulls you aside and says, this is not how this group runs. You know, we have a culture here. Um, I know that it might seem for you to act this way or do this way, but this is not how we do things here. And um, you're new here or whatever, or, you know what I mean? You're, or a young person's growing up and getting their first taste of leadership, right? They may have seen things from the outside, but not known how it works from the inside. They might be a young whippersnapper with all kinds of ideas and, you know, that type of thing. And somebody eventually takes them aside and says, like, I'm glad you have all kinds of ideas, but it, you know, talk to me again in 10 years after you've sat and listened for 10 years. So just shut up. You're, you know, you're at the elders council, but in 10 years, you'll be able to say something. Just listen. You know, if somebody asks you for your opinion, give it, but otherwise just be here. You know what I mean? That type of thing. And they might like really shocking, like, wow, that's how it works. You know, and it's like, yeah, no, because it's it's going to take you 10 years to to be enculturated into how we make decisions and how the elders work and the wisdom. And you're going to learn from men who are older and wiser than you are. And in 10 years, you'll be ready to offer an opinion on your own. Mm-hmm. You know, and they type of and and so this is, I think, it's, it's a very different kind of way. Now, some of it will bear some similarities because there's and people ran whole empires this way beforehand. But um, people have to understand that uh, it will not be run with the same level of efficiency that our current was. You know, we, we look at government and think, oh, it's horribly inefficient. But you think with the sheer scale of information that has to be processed and the things that have to be managed, that most of our governments are are um, incredibly efficient with what they have to do. It's just it's just the sheer scale of it that makes it seem mm. ponderous and inefficient. Um, so yeah, your society will be smaller. It will not be able to be as big, um, and um, it will not be nearly as efficient. It won't have the same level of services. Um, there's a whole range of things that will happen, but hopefully in the process it will be more humane. Now, uh, in terms of the lumpiness of humanity you might have a variation. So if we break up society with all these smaller communities, you might have a handful that are really excellent. You probably will have a few that are absolutely atrocious where they're, and there'll be a bunch in the middle somewhere where, you know, they're, um, but overall, hopefully, you know, generally there'll be a a greater amount of human flesh. And even this is really not a system. I'm just looking at sort of, this is kind of the way things were done in, you know, pre-revolutionary England and France in many ways. And, People weren't necessarily wealthy or whatever, but there was um, a general, you know, cohesiveness to the life and 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 the social patterns that existed. Because in order to impose this system, you have to break down all of those those tight knit social groups mm-hmm. and all those tight knit communities. You really, it is in a sense a kind of either or. You can't have both together. Either you have the national and global superstate. Or you have groups of tight-knit communities where people have lives rich with meaning and fulfillment on a personal level. And the two cannot exist side by side. They just can't. Because you can't create the global superstate without deracinating everybody and turning them into um, mass man and cogs that way. Right. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll summarize what you just said as concisely as I can, and then make a couple observations and ask maybe like one more kind of like big question. Um, So 
Yeah, I, I thought it was like when you said that the merchant class in some sense wants the world to be the same, like this makes a ton of sense. Like it does seem like there's some enlightenment philosophers who are kind of hopeful about the way that commercial activity will be a way to channel spiritedness in such a way that your ambition can be gratified by the rewards and social status that attends, you know, being a successful merchant, but that you won't have to kill people in order to do it. And there, like, there's something attractive about that kind of thing at the same point in time that you can see why making every regime more sensitive to the commercial incentives available to them, if they like, you know, ratchet up the scale of their, uh, yeah. You know. Law contract negotiation. Well, right. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that point is well taken and uh, makes a lot of sense to me. And I think when you were talking about like systems, um, I don't know, like being in charge of things in, in a way, like, well, there's a lot to say about this, but it's almost like in the United States, maybe, maybe this is too much to say, but for people not for nobody to be punished in light of the way that the United States carried out its like COVID policies in light of like information coming out later. It, it's sort of like, yeah, th this kind of sense of like, well, look, there's this amorphous system that there were many experts working on the whole time. And like, we were all like, they were thinking about it, but it's not them. Like we shouldn't, we can't punish Anthony Fauci. We can't really punish anybody because they were just custodians of the system and if it didn't work at certain points, if there were hiccups, it's not really their fault. If they didn't have enough information to like promote policies and enforce them that like were deleterious to human flourishing, well, sorry, sorry, the system didn't work. We're sorry, but like that's the extent of like what might have to be done. And in fact, most of the time, sorry is not even like an apology is not even made at all. Um, the system sort of shields each individual from taking any responsibility whatsoever. Um, and, and this made me think like about Plato to some extent with thinking about like bureaucracy. Cause I think one of the things that you say, um, in the technology article that I mentioned before, that was, yeah, like really helpful to me, um, that I don't know, like bureaucracy, like prevents. So like, it, it's almost like bureaucracy is like an intensification of law or like making it like more particular or more systematic in a sort of sense. Like, okay, so there are laws, but they'll make a bureaucracy that allows us to like enforce the laws in certain ways that like. So somebody comes in and they like want to return an item like, oh, like my grandpa got me a shirt that was too small. So I'd like to return it. Well, I would love for you to return it. I see why that's okay. We'd like to give you store credit, but like, I don't know the proper code to put in and like my manager's not here. And so like, even though human judgment all the time, yeah, human judgment says this is okay. So it's like bureaucracy is like a way to outsource human judgment to some sort of system so that we don't have to do things. And, it's, and it makes me think of Plato's Republic. I mean- it's such a sweeping thing that you could uh, record like a a lifetime long conversation about. But so I don't mean to talk about it for very long, but just that the it seems to me that the notion of the philosopher king is something that's in tension with the idea of law. That law is sort of like you do X, then Y will happen to you as the repercussion. And that the philosopher king, like the idea of having wisdom rule as opposed to law being the ruler is to say that if it was possible. Wouldn't it be nice if in like a wise human being examined all the particulars of why you did what you did and something along those lines um, that, it, yeah, it would be nice to, so that whatever is best in light of the particulars could be done in each and every case. But since it's not always possible that, well, since it's more or less never possible for wisdom to rule, like uh, in a, in a certain sense that law 
or like a great founder creating laws is like a sort of second best wise laws are kind of like proxy to some extent for uh, a philosopher king because you really can't depend upon that like happening or even if it even happened once or something like will it happen again and i don't know there's a lot, a lot to say about this but it does seem like bureaucracy and law especially bureaucracy seems to be this abandonment of you judging a situation for yourself like don't judge this like what would your manager say if you did this? Oh, okay. Well, let's make sure that we like follow this. I don't know. So, I mean, I thought that was interesting, and, and that you had talked about, um, in some sense, law doesn't or ought not to have its basis, or maybe the laws in the strictest and highest sense don't have their basis in rationality, which isn't to say that they're not good or that they're just the result of passion, but rather that God would be the author of those kinds of things. I mean, like. Uh, I don't know exactly how to think about this, but just in like uh, Plutarch's life of Lycurgus, like uh, this like founder of the Spartans, like he gets the laws from Apollo. He leaves, like has some kind of vision from Apollo, comes back and then dispenses these laws, which there's a lot to say about Spartan laws. And we don't have to you know, go into like all the nuances of the Spartan things, but like he said, mm -hmm. I received this from somebody else. This is beyond human wisdom. Like human wisdom alone couldn't somehow suffice to present and give and he was right yeah right and that's the thing like that's the thing too like i don't know if you saw on netflix there's this new series on alexander yeah I where, that you know the, the 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 promo said you know either he really believed it or it was just propaganda that he had received you know his kingship or whatever that he was the living embodiment of the god and i'm like well yeah that's how he would have understood it because he was an ancient that's how that's how archetypes work he was the living, you know, he was basic by being the king. He becomes the the god man. You know, that's the, yeah. you know, the he. Under, I, Alexander understood his role far better than you do because he understood the basic archetype of the king yeah. far better than you do, right? It, it, and and this, I think, you know, you know, we get um, Nayeb Bukele where he you know puts on his Twitter handle philosopher king, right? And this is something that Carl Schmidt noted with his miracle of law in in um, political theology. And this, I think, you know, we we live with the belief that if we develop the policy manual properly, right, that we can develop the rule of law such that we can account for every situation. We can just flip to page number 645 in the policy manual and it will tell us what to do in every situation, right? And what Carl Schmidt argued, what Plato is making the case for and other is that 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 is not the case at all. And and even in, you know, to bring it into sort of a scriptural biblical sense, I, there's an example I use all the time um, from the Proverbs and, and people can look it up. It's Proverbs 26, verse four and five, right? So the nature of wisdom. So Proverbs 26, verse four says, you know, um, do not correct a fool or you will get sucked into his folly, something like that. And in the very next verse, it says, correct a fool or he will forever remain in his folly, right? And they're back to back. And you're thinking like, why are these two pieces of opposite pieces of advice back to back? And then you realize that the author is actually saying something about the nature. You know, he find these two sayings and puts them together. He's saying something about the nature of wisdom itself, right? Is that there are certain situations where there is no policy manual. And this is what Carl Schmidt was saying about the exception. You know, he who's sovereign is he who decides the exception. So the king, you, you will run into these moments all the time. And this is what Plato is getting at in the philosopher king, is that you there is no policy manual that will tell you whether to correct a fool or not correct a fool. Mm -hmm. Right. And sort of the biblical vision is 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you are in a proper relationship with God, with the divine, right? And you're, you're, and there's, there's all kinds like, you know, there's the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac going up the mountain. There's Moses going. So there's all these stories of encounters with the divine, you know, Elijah with the silence and the, you know, so that we have all of these stories of the encounters with the divine that creates these archetypes, right? So, but you're in this archetype of divine encounter is the foundation of, of rule. Mm-hmm. So that way in the moment, the wise king, the philosopher king, when he confronts the fool, there is no answer before and there's no policy manual, right? What do you do? It's like Solomon and the, the two mothers and the dead baby, right? There is no policy manual that tells you that, like, you know, suggest cut the baby in half and that will solve the problem, right? Because right. you just, you don't write a policy like that. Nobody does. It just, you don't. But in a sense, the philosopher king, the 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 sovereign, in the moment, because he's walked before God, he has insight into that divine knowledge. Um, and, and, you know, in, in, in the Greek sense, because he participates in the forms, because he participates in the archetypes, right? Mm-hmm. In that moment of encounter, he makes the right decision. Yeah. He corrects the fool. He doesn't correct the fool. He cuts up the baby. He doesn't cut up the baby, right? That, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and this is really the source of authority. So we have, we've come to the belief that rationality is the source of like breaking things down, abstracting them, rationalizing them, discussion, reason, these, we can ground law in these things. And what Schmidt says, no, you can't, because there's always going to be a situation for which reason cannot account. There is a point where everything reaches where you must make an intuitive decision that reason cannot give you the answer to. So that's that sort of limits of rationality, mm-hmm. right? And so what you're saying is you can write out rules all you want. You can hold them in community and, and you kind of need to do that for collective memory. You can have a policy manual, right? But, and again, you, you make a moral choice with, with this, and this is the separate thing of like, how do you break out of the, the whole thing? And really the, the answer to, to, to technology and politics is it's a moral question, right? You, 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 you approach it differently. But in the end, your, your leadership, the people who are in charge, are these type of people who walk before God. They have that answer. And in the moment, they're able to know whether to correct a fool or not correct a fool. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the policy manual, like um, Bukele says, you know, he says, all the, all the experts are telling me you can't do this. You shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. All of these criminals are like, if you listen to his tale about all the advisors that told him, don't do this because um, they're a functioning part of the economy. There's people who rely on this kind of money from the criminal gangs, right? right? And Bukele says like, no, we're just going to cut the baby in half, right? And and we're going to correct the fool. And he rounded them all up. And the country's great and the economy's doing well. These people found a way to feed themselves in many ways, right? So there's things that, that blossomed in the meantime, and it happened very rapidly. Like it wasn't like it took overnight. It wasn't like people were starving in the streets because they had no money. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And he talks, like he himself talks about this. So, you know, the, and, and the, the leader knows when to kind of cut that Gordian knot, right? right? And so there's, but in, in the West, we have associated this type of leadership with authoritarianism, right? That a person can't possibly be entrusted with this much 
decision-making power. You know, we must rely on the policy. We must rely on the rule of law to put that kind of power into the hands of one person who then decides what truth is, what law will be, what morality will be, is just too much for us to, to handle, right? Um, and so we rebel against this idea because for us, the policy manual allows us to, um, it, it, we believe it gives us greater control, greater grounding. But in fact, what it does is it smothers us. We, we really don't want these types of leaders in charge of us, but our society is dying because what happens is when you have this great leveling with technique, right? You tell all of these great men um, that they have to conform themselves to the dictates of policy. Right. Right. And so they either get bred out of the system, they get, you know, shunted off. Maybe they go into other projects, smaller projects, but they're not given that place of singular leadership. And so you lose all of these peaks, the genius members of your society who lead, give guidance, the real men of wisdom and insight. We don't have them anymore, in part because system and technology is as largely um, and you can they can document that you know, over the last 150 years, we're just not as capable as we were as the middle 1800s, right? And we're, we're the, the technical system itself in many ways, along with a lot of other environmental things, the plastics, the pollutants, the seed oils and all the rest of it. But a, a good part of it is just simply um, adapt, that we've adapted ourselves to the technical system. And so we've all muttered, we've all managed to muddle ourselves into this sort of band across the middle right? Where the highs and lows are within an acceptable range. And we're now across it. And so we have no real great men, but we've, we've thankfully eliminated a lot of the, the, the bad outcomes of, right? But you, you can't survive. A, a society can't thrive into the future. You can't send people to the moon or whatever. And so in that sense, you know, you're looking at like, well, what can you offer people in an alternative community is that you can hopefully open the door to to great men once again being able to lead but on a local scale right right on a much smaller scale yeah 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 that's really helpful so maybe, maybe this will yeah this fits really well with the last question maybe i'll give like a, a tiny illustration um so like and maybe i didn't mention the name of your article which was the loss of arte why technology makes you dumber and less capable while making you feel powerful um and i remember uh, maybe I listened, you had done an interview with Aaron McIntyre, either where you talked about things from this yeah. article or the ideas were just similar enough that when I was making a, a kind of like lecture series on Ray Bradbury's dandelion wine uh, at the time, like you, you had maybe tweeted something out about this too, whatever. But some of my observations in dandelion wine were inspired by your thoughts uh, on this over the summer where there's this grandmother who makes this like, you know, unbelievably delicious food and everybody who enjoys it doesn't even know really what's all in it. They don't sometimes know exactly what they're eating, but they love it. And every time that they know grandma's like made food, they immediately are like, Whoa, like we're here. Everybody's here immediately. And her kitchen is very dirty and disorganized and nothing is labeled and no one can really help her make the food. Oftentimes, sometimes, you know, the kids can, but because of the way that things are organized, it's not really possible for a lot of people to assist um, and there's this aunt who comes to visit and she loves the food also, but she's fueled, uh, by this like optimism that technology and the routinization of technique can, uh, make this even better. So when she looks at the kitchen, 
rather than seeing this is the means by which these great, beautiful things are made, she sees a set of problems that can be solved. So it's disorderly, things are poorly labeled. Grandma also doesn't have a very good set of glasses, so she can't see well. Um, and there are no cookbooks, so like the recipes can't even be reliably repeated. So the aunt wants to turn grandma's cooking into a process or technical skill that can be easily repeated. Um, and that like method or process is introduced into the setting. Um, and so she labels everything, she organizes everything. But in that sense, it's like the more replaceable, like the aunt, aunt Rose wants to turn this practitioner of cooking, this outstanding exemplar of how to make beautiful things that bind people together into somebody who's replaceable, that there's like a, a remi- sorry, a reliable method that you can just transfer to other cogs in the machine. And that makes grandma not indispensable. Whereas previously there was a kind of like mystical, I don't know, like, a, yeah, kind of like mystical sense of like grandma can just do this thing that we don't know how to do. We don't know how she does it, but it's amazing. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. So it's almost like over-dependence on method eliminates individuality. At any rate, there's, there's a lot more to say about that scene from Dandelion Wine, but your your thoughts on technique kind of inspired me to see this in what Bradbury was doing. He, in some sense, in his own way, shows a similar lesson that I think you had learned from Alul. Um, and so just curious then to ask the question, uh, how, how does technique, and you say a lot of like really helpful things about this, how does technique make particular individuals irrelevant? And then also how does technology in some sense make us worse or to use, you know, the word, the Greek word arte, how does it make us less excellent human beings or less virtuous human beings? Like what, how does what does technology do to us? We know what the blessings are, but what are the sort of like unseen trade-offs that are hard to put in front of our minds? Yeah, it's interesting that Elul makes the point in the technological society that the Greeks actually could develop a technological society, but didn't mm-hmm. because they valued their own excellence more. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing for us to, to realize, right? So, when you have a, a small set of tools and you are the craftsman, what is decisive is not the tools, but my skills and abilities, right? So as you then, um, and, and when you learn it organically, you know, in that kind of setting, um, whether it's the art of fighting, whether it's the art of making things, whether it's even the art of governing, right? You, you learn to, and this is, you know, in a sense with Plato in the forms, you're learning and, and with grandma, she's embracing the, the, in a sense, the genius, the higher wisdom, the, the deeper truths about cooking. And so she's in a sense, there's almost a, a divine revelation that's occurring in her, in her kitchen that you could maybe spend a few years cooking with grandma and you could sense the same thing that she's sensing when she's cooking. But if you take it and you break it down and you rationalize it, you systematize it, you turn it into a repeatable process, um, no longer is the skill of grandma decisive. What is decisive is the the, the machine, the, the process, the technique. And so by, by abstracting it, by rationalizing it, the person is no longer the significant entity. The technique becomes the significant entity. 
And so there is, yes, some intelligence required to, to abstract and rationalize a process, but not as much as being the genius. And what actually ends up happening is that in that process, you cut yourself off from this kind of intuitive genius that's out there. So you cut yourself off um, from God himself, even in the tech. So you, this is what Heidegger talks about. You're inframed by your technology, right? And you become, you know, increasingly more removed from the, the craftsman process. So yes, you're making things and you, now you, you're a machine operator and the machine is making things maybe even at a very high quality, right? So, but they're consistent, they're repeatable, they're economic, you're making them at scale, Um but no longer is the decisive element your skill and ability. What's decisive is now the machine, the technique, the, and, and, and the processes. And, and you become increasingly removed. So you could end up becoming like a, a control person sitting in a control room, and you never even touch the machines, and yet things are being made, right? right? And so what happens is then by not exercising those abilities – you become increasingly less capable. And this, again, we track this loss ability as we've introduced more and more technique to create, you know, that the sort of um, tailors and the time and motion studies, as you introduce more and more technique into more and more parts of life, we cut ourselves off from our own abilities because we no longer have to exercise our own things. Now, you may have tapped into, as we talked about, incredible amounts of machine power to make things, to harness things, and, and to do that towards making money. But as a result, people no longer have to exercise their abilities. They no longer have to, they just have to run machines. And so because less, is, it's like a muscle, right? Because less is demanded of you, you become weaker. And so in your in your your abilities and your skills, you stop striving for greatness, for being an excellent craftsperson and who, who's, who's, who's filled with skill, you become just a machine operator. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so progressively, as we gain more and more power with technique and technology, we make ourselves less and less capable as human beings. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. Um, it makes me think to tie this back to what you had said before about the regime having powerful incentives for keeping you inside of the system. That even if you're not improving yourself very much, like, you know, like going to college or high school, if you don't have good teachers and there's not a good curriculum and it's just something where you're just supposed to be as quiet as you can be, or it's crazy or whatever, but like you're, you're getting credentials, you get the best, you get a credential and a recommendation from the high school. This sends you off to the college. The college may or may not teach you important things. You get a credential. This allows you to move on to the business. And then the business isn't really, some businesses, some fields might need you to actually be competent in something, but some of them are just like, well, can you, are you good at manipulating machines and systems without having any kind of like wisdom of your own? Okay. That's good because we need obedient people to run the system properly. And that's what we would like. And I don't know that there's like a way in which, the, the machines, and this is something that struck me when I was reading the, the technology makes us dumber article, is it so you get grammarily, you get spell check, you get, you know, things along those lines. And that makes it so that the end product is decisively better. It like, you know, you don't mm-hmm. have these like uh, blemishes that make your thing less pleasant to read for those who still do understand grammar uh, for the few that maybe exist. But like, you don't like to see those typos, but there's a way in which then 
the price you pay is like, well, I don't know where a comma goes uh, or, you know, something, something along. Well, exactly. And I don't know how to form a sentence or what this word means even, or, or yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe this like all falls into maybe a permanent disposition of the human soul, which is there's maybe a temptation to love honor or the esteem of others more than we ought to, because it's not as if like, it, it, maybe it's possible to be completely insensitive to the pleasure that attends when others say that you did something well, but now because of grammarly and spell check and various other machines that we help ourselves to, we appear to be more competent than we would be otherwise. And so then people can praise us and celebrate the things that we've done because we helped ourselves to these, you know, external prosthetics that like make it so that we can walk when maybe we wouldn't have been able to walk before intellectually or something along those lines. And uh, I don't know. So, so like love of honor seems to be a permanent problem in every time and place, but it seems like machines exacerbate this difficulty and make it so that we really, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. We, we all, it's, it's very difficult to appear in front of others as less than you are like in a, like the Odyssey or Homer's Odyssey when Telemachus is able to string Odysseus's bow. Um, and mm-hmm. the, the suitors can't, but then Odysseus looks at him and sort of like indicates like, no, this is not okay. Uh, like I'm supposed to do this. And Telemachus plays the part and he's, and he then gives a speech where he's just like, I'm not stronger than you're like, I'm not strong enough to do this. And, and, and he sort of indicates his wretchedness and weakness, but, and that's all like towards like a larger, you know, good thing that will happen later as far as he's concerned. But, at, at, but it's very painful to say to others, I'm less strong than I am and have them believe it in their hearts. Whereas technology allows us to say, I'm stronger than I am. And maybe other people believe it in their hearts. And it's, it's not good. It's like, it, it invites like fatal misdeception or not misdeception, fatal self-deception. Well, it, it's interesting because the, the example that, you know, a, a quick example is like we as before we went on the air, we were talking about um, the, you know, my little misstep using um, Greek translation, right? Even though I have a degree in classics, right? <laughs> and I can write Greek, I can read Greek. It was just easier to use um, an AI tool to do the translation that I wanted because I could do it myself, but it just takes too time consuming or whatever. So it's like, a, and then I, I just, didn't quite, I didn't review it quite. I wasn't careful. And I s- tweeted out something that was modern Greek rather than classical Greek. And somebody else called me on it. And I'm like, oh, that's embarrassing, right? But yeah, you know what? I'm probably still going to, sooner or later, I'm going to do the same tool again because it's a lot easier. I can read Greek a lot easier than I can write it. You know, it's just, it's more to pull the words out of your head or whatever than, you know, when you have them in front of you, they, the, the recognition is often there, right? So I'm not above using the tools, but I recognize that it's probably better for me in the long term if I were to take the 20 minutes, a half hour to actually do the translation myself, yeah. right? And to write it all out myself um, because it would ca- it would flex my skills more and would remind me of things that I've learned in the past. And so that would be a good thing. Um, and and this type of thing carries on to into like ranges of activities. We think of like, you know, in we call it leadership today, right? But leadership really isn't leadership. A lot of it is just management. So you be, as you gain leadership ability by learning a series of maybe more complex techniques on how to manage people, how to deal with conflict. And somebody has already broken down all things, how to listen to people, how to do this and how to do that. And everybody breaks these things all down into systems 
and you go down and you pick a book out at the library, you watch a video on YouTube, you learn a few techniques, you take a course on it, you've now got a conflict resolution um, certificate, right? And you take, and and so, you know, the the manager um, isn't relying on his own, but he's just merely a collection of techniques, Mm -hmm. Right. right. And he's only as good as the collection of techniques that he's acquired. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like that scene in the matrix, you know what I mean? Like I can't fly a helicopter. Right. right. So you plug in the helicopter tape, you know, so I can't manage conflict, you know, conflict. I go away for a two week course and now I can come back and I can manage conflict. Right. And that's kind right. of, and that's kind of how we approach it. Right. Um, and so, but you, you, you realize that if, if you apply this over, a society forever or over a period of time that eventually is anyone. And this is the question is anyone going to be capable enough to develop the systems on their own? Right. We can, we have people that are capable of managing and working within the systems, but they're not capable of developing the systems on their own because they lack the wisdom. Right. And it's a really kind of an, it's a kind of either, or once you're locked into and you're framed in the system, the system re- resists capable people. Um, you know, it resists philosopher kings. It doesn't want the philosopher kings because they're tyrants, right? Or their excellence makes me feel inferior. No, those types of things. Right. Um, and so, you know, and this comes back to your whole, ultimately, I think the, the problem with technique is it's, it's like biting the apple, right? Which is, you know, the app, every people have been noticing the apple logo as of late, right? right? that technology is like taking that bite of the apple is that once you've bitten, it becomes, it, it's the, the deal, it, dealing with technology is like dealing with sin almost is that once you've bitten the apple and you have knowledge of good and evil, um, once you have knowledge of technique is that, you know, you can exert moral capacity over it and say no at a certain point, but somebody once it's out there is going to say, why are nobody using all these techniques, man? You can, there's all kinds of crazy power in here to make money and to rule people. I'm just going to grab a hold of this. Why is nobody else doing it? Well, because society, you know, they learned the hard lesson that, you know, um, you know, so you'd almost have to get a point as anyone that even thinks about it. You'd have to, you know, um, you know, the, a quick and merciful death for the good of society, because, um, you know, the, the do the hard thing for everybody else, because um, we've all learned that, um, we can either be excellent and good and live in small, um, well-integrated communities, or we can have power and money um, and technical control over things. And now there's probably no, and this is, I think, the thing that, is, that frustrates people a little bit, is there's no easy answers here. And this is kind of the thing that ultimately, and this is one of the things is that, that the technical system kind of denies, is that the solution of the technical system is ultimately moral and spiritual, Right. The technical system wants just to believe that all problems are technical. So you can solve every problem, that, that every technical problem with another round of technical solutions, right. right? And that if we just keep iterating, that we'll eventually get to the point where, you know, Alul calls this unreason. But he says that the one thing that you can't admit is that the, the quote unquote, the solutions, that there are none, and the, those solutions that there are exist outside of the technical reality that you have to let go of the technical reality to embrace something different. Right. Yeah. I or make it subservient to something else. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot if I said this to Space Age Maximus or not, but like I listened to uh, this 
podcast called The New Thinkery where a very smart guest said something along the lines of like calling this a dataless problem of like science creating problems that science has to solve, but just creates new downstream effects of like, Absolutely. like the pacifier wants to have sex with a bull. And so they turned to Daedalus to like make an interspecies, you know, sex machine. And like, so that it's like, you look at this, instead of like saying this is a moral problem, you look at it as an engineering problem. Like, what is it? Can we make it so that this is possible? Uh, yeah, I think we, we could, as opposed to saying, should Pasifae like moderate her desires? And like, I mean, to say the least, exactly. that's insane, you know? And then all of a sudden, that's exactly yeah, it. Then you have a, a minotaur baby and then you have to make a labyrinth around it. So you use a new technical solution to solve this problem that science itself created. And so. And those will create further ills. And then every solution that you implement makes the system more complex and more fragile. And it also makes the problems so big that you feel helpless in the face of them. And that's the other thing that it really does is it makes you feel like that can any one person solve any right. of this. <laughs> Do you have any last words of wisdom on technology or parallelism or something you would hope to say earlier that you, maybe I cut you off. Oh, there, yeah, no, I, it's, um, I think the, the biggest thing is just to, to get people to begin thinking about the world differently from what, from the, what we do. And then um, to begin looking at reality in terms of, I think, you know, from this, the idea of the philosopher king, that, that there are intuitive, not all, maybe that's the biggest thing, is that, and this goes from Ian McGilchrist, right, is that, and, and Julian James, is that our technical reality makes us less capable of mm -hmm. embracing these kinds of intuitive solutions. Mm -hmm. And it's really... The, the way out for this to build these alternative communities means re-embracing re a kind of intuitive knowledge of the world, which uh, muscles that we've, we haven't exercised for, for 200 years mm -hmm. and have grown quite atrophied because we've become so reliant upon technique and technology. It's just learning to embrace the intuitive um, and learning to be content, knowing that the answer will come in the moment when you don't have it, and then laying the groundwork of, in a sense of, of you know, getting right with God, so that when the moment comes, the right answer will be there for you. Which, from the technical mindset, is is completely crazy, because you have to have it all planned out. Right. Wow. Well, this has been. Oh, this is. I, I've really enjoyed uh, talking to you. Yeah, it's been fun. Yes. We'll have, we will have to do this again. Absolutely. Yes. Either uh, in the Christian ghetto or here, but I, I would love to do this again. And um, I'm grateful for you taking the yeah. time. No, it's very good. I'm glad you're able to get up early and do a podcast for me to accommodate the time difference. Yeah. No, my, my pleasure. Um, well, Montana and Kryptos are out. <laughs>